Welcome to the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast. I'm John Hartley, your host. Here we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. Today, I'm fortunate to be joined by Salim Firth, who is a senior research fellow and director of the Urbanity Project at the Mercatus Center at the George Mason University. Um, welcome, Salim. John, thank you so much for having me on. Salim, I, I want to get back in, uh, just a little bit into your background before we uh, jump into uh, topics like uh, zoning um, and housing and um, urban economics. Uh, you grew up in Boston. Uh, you did your PhD in economics at the University of Rochester, uh, where you were a Mark Aguiar student. That's right. Um, and then you went to work at uh, Mercatus. Uh, sorry, you went to work at Heritage before um, joining Mercatus. Um, I'm curious. I, I know uh, you did some work in um, in macroeconomics um, before um, focusing on urban economics. I'm curious. Um, tell me a bit about your um, intellectual uh, trajectory. How you got interested in economics and macroeconomics and urban economics. And I'm curious. Like, you know, do you think that um, macro uh, and urban uh, maybe should talk to each other a bit more in the sense that I think we often um, these fields, you know, macro and sort of applied micro urban are often in academia thought of to be very separate, and even in think tanks are sort of kept very separate. But I think in recent years, I've started to hear more from central bankers, economic policymakers who sort of sit on the macroeconomic side of things to talk about things like supply constraints uh, being a big factor in driving uh, housing price growth that we've seen over the past couple of years. I'm curious um, what your thoughts are about um, the, these fields and, and how um, what, what your experience has been like um, sitting in both of them. Yeah, thanks. Uh, great series of questions. I'll, I'll try to zip through some of those. I, I think my interests are really daisy-chained. When I started college, I wanted to do international affairs. That became more like international economics, which is what I, I worked under Aguiar on. And then that morphed at, at Heritage more to domestic uh, economic policy. And then I really saw just how big of a deal housing was as a cost to families. And this kind of goes to your, your final question is, should macroeconomists be talking more to urban? And, and in my case, it was basically a macroeconomist becoming an urban economist. And, you know, there were maybe some good career reasons to do that. It's a lot more fun to work on urban economics than, than macro in uh, the environment today. But, you know, I think macro, I think it's had an identity crisis since the... Uh, kind of fallout after the 08 recession. You know, one of the things that I think er academic macroeconomists realized was you can get almost anything out of a model, right? And, and once you get good at modeling, you kind of know that which ingredients you put in will kind of determine your, your output. And so I, I think in that environment, it doesn't make all those papers wrong, but it makes it really hard to distinguish between two equally good disagreeing answers. So I, you know, I'm really glad to kind of not be in macroeconomics. I'm, I'm not smart enough to be one of the people who's, who's designing the new macroeconomics and, and the, the path away from that impasse. But urban economics is, is so much fun because we've got tons of data. You can frequently be the first person to use a high quality data set. And every city is, is unique, but then they all have similarities. So you've got some sort of specificity and generalization that you can do from empirical work. And then urban economics kind of, you know, touches and, and interacts with almost every other 
branch, right? There are urban labor markets, urban housing markets, um, urban urban poverty and social mobility issues, uh, urban transportation issues, urban investment. So, like, you touch everything, but you're thinking about it in this very sort of real context, and it's a lot more fun to like meet non-economists because they used they used to like have no idea what I did, and now they're now they're like, oh, houses. I know what a house is. I live in a house. Let's talk about houses. Absolutely. I mean that. It- I feel like it's a super exciting time um, to be an urban economist or, or to be a housing economist. I, I think urban economics in general, I think, has a lot of subfields. And I, I think you know, just talking about housing, I feel like it's just you know one of them. You know, we think about uh, things like um, you know, transportation or, I mean, there, there's, I feel like, so many topics in urban economics. Um, I, I guess, like, one um, like I, there's one issue I think that often these macroeconomists will point to is that um, I guess when, when trying to criticize uh, applied macroeconomists, you know, maybe there isn't enough external validity in, for example, if you only look at one city, you know, how um, relevant are those results to looking at other cities? But on the other hand, I, I think sort of part of what you're getting at in terms of um, some part of your uh, disenchantment with parts of macroeconomics uh, which I, I can relate to as well, I think, is, is you know, this whole identification problem. And I think if you know, the Nobel Prize of the you know, recent years uh, and the work that it celebrates uh, reflects any of this, uh, you know, there's been a massive shift to empirical work. And I think macroeconomists uh, macro in general have been a bit slow to embrace things like ident- you know, good identification strategies and so forth. And I think even that's starting to change a little bit now. You know, we have things like, I guess, local projections and, and things like that, which I think are really just uh, you know, uh, macroeconomic rephrasings for... Uh, uh, you know, good identification strategies, things like different diff and, and so forth. But um, I, I think, uh, you know, urban economics is very exciting. And I think uh, one, you're doing, I think, uh, some of the most interesting work in urban economics. And, and you're, I, I think, one of the most knowledgeable and thoughtful people I've ever uh, spoken with um, about these topics. Um, you should get out more. <laughs> well, I, I th- why don't we get into some of uh, the work that you've done um, at Mercatus and, and some of your own research? Because I, I think it's, it's really interesting um, and I'm curious, like, what do we, what do you think we know about urban economics, and what do you think about uh, the things that you know we know about supply constraints, how maybe um, damaging they are, or, or to what degree they are contributing to how expensive it is in many of these metropolitan areas, primarily on the coasts. You know, we can't in Washington D.C. where we are today. You know, you can't build anything higher than the Washington Monument um, in Washington D.C. proper. Um, you look to San Francisco, you know, you, there's, there's been no net new population growth in San Francisco as well as Oakland mm-hmm. as well. And, uh, since it's the same population basically since 1950, um, and these are some of the most expensive places out there, but I guess, like, you know, are, is urban economics, um, are we learning new things and on the policy front, do you think that we're making progress? Yeah. So I think what's, what the real progress is being made in connecting urban theory to empirics. So those two things, and you know, maybe I'll get in trouble with a previous generation, but I'd say to a first approximation, those two things kind of grew up separately. People would kind of generally estimate a theoretical model off of data, but you know, as long as the fit was kind of generally good, they'd say, this is a good theory. They didn't worry too much uh, about the refinements. And they didn't worry too much about the, the kind of the gritty details of what makes a city a city. So. Um, the DC Highland is a fantastic example, and you know, not to embarrass you, but tons of people studying urban phenomena 
get basic facts wrong. So there's a, this urban method that has to do with the Washington Monument. It doesn't. The height limit is a fire safety code from 1910 that Congress put in place when Congress basically made all the, the kind of like day-to-day -day decisions for life here in D.C. And it has to do with street width. So the, the, the building can't be taller than the width of the street that it's facing. So you get slightly taller buildings on wider streets. It looks pretty much like a flat surface if you look at it from across the river or something because the streets are all approximately the same width. So you, you, you don't get a real urban height. And now people defend it because it makes the, the monument stand out. Uh, but we're just getting to the point where we're starting to see papers where someone's like, okay, I've actually read the code. I understand exactly what the binding constraints are, how to model them. So there's literally a paper by a GWU grad student about the DC height limit, uh, where he's accurately modeling how many stories you can build on each parcel. And then trying to, to use that, he's trying, he's trying to measure some externalities. So something interesting about how people value sight lines out of their windows. It's like when a neighboring building gets built, they, they pay less in rent. All that is, is connecting these, these kind of rich, useful theory constructs we've had for a long time to the new data availability. And the linchpin here is going into those city codes and, and actually understanding what are the rules that say, I can build a seven-story building, but not a 12-story building. And what are the rules that say that I can uh, build up to you know, 15 feet from the sidewalk, but no closer, uh, but also not any further than 25 feet from the sidewalk? And then some people have tried to then connect that to industry data. This is still, I think, a, a serious weakness. We, we don't have good industry data on, for instance, what different methods of construction cost, right? So if you build a taller building, you need to often switch from timber frame to um, concrete frame construction. There's some books that publish cost estimates, but they're not that accurate. They're, they're kind of immediately out of date. And I think that's maybe the next stage we'll be going from, all right, we've got the economic theory tools, we've got the statistical toolbox, we've got the gritty details of how the city regulates things, and, and now we need to really understand how industry works when, when they're looking at uh, building sites. Got it. You know, it's interesting studying zoning. You know, the one thing I think about it that makes it so at times difficult is how multidimensional it is. Um, you know, there's all sorts of different types of land use regulations, uh, you know, from minimum lot sizes to height restrictions, you name it. It seems interesting that, like, just looking at some of the job market papers, uh, you know, people who are on the market this year, I know one, I think, trick that people are starting to use is using things like machine, machine learning and satellite imagery to sort of understand, you know, where a single uh, family, um, you know, lot size regulations kind of exist. And um, it's difficult in part also because, you know, we don't really have any kind of time series data uh, whatsoever, um, uh, at least certainly uh, much that goes uh, to the present. Um, but I, I guess, you know, it, it's interesting, like with this history, of zoning, um, you've done a bit of work on this. Uh, you know, for those who aren't familiar with the history of zoning, you know it sort of starts in um, the 19 early 20th century, uh, early 1900s. Um, you know, the 1920s um, saw um, you know, rapid uh, adoption of zoning codes. Um, there was uh, essentially uh, the administrations at the time um, were very supportive of zoning. 
Um, I think there's some evidence that um, it in part was a, a reaction to um, immigrant flows at the time, um, the early 20th century. Um, and, and of course, you know, this is what we're talking about is Euclidean zoning, uh, you know, which is different from you know, the racial zoning laws, uh, which were overturned by the Supreme Court, I think, in 1917. That's right. uh, but after that, um, there was this um, massive adoption of Euclidean zoning, um, which perhaps you know, partially was a result of, of uh, uh, in part, to replace some of those uh, racial zoning laws. But I think more, more broadly, I think the dominant uh, factor was that the, you know, there was a lot of immigration going on at the time, and, and these um, Euclidean zones, like you know, Euclidean zones, you know, putting you know, industry goes here, residences go here. Um, you know, that's where we're how we're going to design a city. Right, and, and Euclidean here is, is a play on the name, the, the city of Euclid, Ohio, which was the famous court case uh, where this was tested after it had been in place maybe for, for six or eight years by the time it got to the Supreme Court. And the court actually flipped on the issue. At first, they were going to say, no, it's unconstitutional. The, the lower court judge, Weston Haber, said it was unconstitutional. And the advocates of zoning, who were, who were really, you know, uh, progressive scholars and, and, you know, kind of upstanding citizens, they came in with a full court press and, and made this kind of convincing argument. And so the Supreme Court, and, you know, I guess one justice flipped Sutherland and said, yep, the use zoning where we separate different, different uses, including treating apartment houses as fundamentally different than single family houses. And I think that's kind of maybe the original sin of American zoning is, is that it didn't treat all residential zones or all residential uses equally. Um, for the origins, there's, there's interesting arguments. I think the the the, the the presence of immigrants was clearly the reason that New York City adopted the first comprehensive zoning ordinance. The Fifth Avenue merchants didn't want industrial workers on their lunch breaks and after work uh, filling up Fifth Avenue and scaring away their clientele. And they, they tried first via private action to say, okay, we'll all agree not to buy from any um, garment manufacturers who locate above such and such a street. But there were too many of the clothing boutiques, which is what Fifth Avenue was lined with, and there were defectors who could get, you know, quicker delivery um, as, their, you know, as their stocks changed even during the course of the day from, you know, essentially sweatshop factories um, in, the, in the tenements just behind Fifth Avenue. And so they would defect. And so essentially this private sort of um, cartel solution failed and so then they, they kind of had a Baptists and bootleggers alliance with the good government progressives to say, well, instead of um, you know, trying to self-regulate industry, let's have the government regulate it. Um, and, and it put a kind of a nice face on what was essentially an invidious motive. But then outside of New York, there's some evidence that um, it's, it was cars and trucks that really motivated people to want to separate industrial from residential uses. Right, so um, this is a, the case that Bill Fischel at Dartmouth makes, that it's the automobile, and there's a lot about automobiles in Euclid, the decision, where it used to be that you knew where factories were to go because they had to be on the rail line, right? A factory off a rail line was useless, and so you could kind of safely build your house if you were five blocks from the train station, you knew that no factory was going to come there, and anything that was large scale was going to stay near the trains. But once there are buses and trucks, then industry and apartment houses become untethered from train lines and so people sort of sought to sort of replace that security with regulation. God, interesting. I mean, it, 
it's so fascinating, um, you know, just even going through some of the historical documents um, from around this time. I mean, it, it's interesting, you know, the, as you were mentioning the New York City case, I was just thinking about Streets of Gold, uh, the, the new book uh, by Rana Abramitsky and, Le and Leah Bustan on um, uh, the history of immigration in the U.S. and sort of on um, immigration economics and trying to um, essentially summarize their research um, and, and sort of overturn various immigration sort of um, myths. And it's it's so interesting. You know, one thing that uh, their research focuses on is the 1924 Reed Johnson Act, which was one of the, you know, the, essentially when you know, the uh, Customs and Border Patrol was uh, created and, um, and, and basically created sort of modern borders as we sort of know it for the, the United States. And, um, and they also uh, uh, dramatically reduced um, the number of migrants uh, coming to the U.S. Um, from, I think, maybe like a million a year to a, few, a couple hundred thousand uh, a year. I mean, it's, it's interesting that these two things were happening at the, essentially the exact same time. That's right. Um, both all the zoning and, and then uh, Ambler versus Euclid, the Supreme Court ruling didn't happen until 1926. But I think a lot of the zoning had, had happened um, even prior to that. Um, but it's also interesting, too, that um, you know Herbert Hoover was then the Secretary of Commerce was leading a lot of these charges in terms of getting states to adopt state uh, enabling laws uh, that, that would help uh, municipalities adopt uh, more zoning codes. It's, it's, and it's so interesting what you mentioned about you know, the, the, you mentioned it's the original sin of American zoning and, and treating uh, residential and apartment buildings um, uh, this, uh, is different it's, sort it's, of yeah. distinct um, uh, you know, uses. Um, uh, you know, to imagine, you know, how different things would be now uh, had, uh, you know, had that been different, uh, it'd be very interesting. Or if the Supreme Court, uh, I guess, had overturned zoning to begin with in 1926. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be really interesting to see what we would have gotten. So all, all of this stuff, right, so like, I think there's a, 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 and, you know, maybe getting out of my field a little, there's a, a, a big part of the modern American psyche that I think dates from this era is the desire for safety, right? So like, if you go before 1920, we're really not that worried about chemicals and weird stuff in medicine. We're not that worried about um, war tactics, right? So like World War II tactics were much more built around protecting the American soldier versus World War I tactics that they just treated them like they were expendable. Um, industrial safety, you know, rules were kind of came in in the twenties as well. So I think like some of this stuff is good, right? I'm glad we have, you know, people making sure medicines are not full of lead or something, and I'm glad that buildings don't fall down routinely or something like that. Or that people aren't getting tuberculosis. People aren't getting tuberculosis, that. yeah. But but at the same time, that same desire for safety made us do things like exclude immigrants and build up a zoning state that was, you know, essentially designed to exclude. It was designed to uh, protect the people who were making the laws, which was essentially homeowners, from people who were not in the room when the laws were being made. And I, I think that's just, that's fundamental to our psyche. And, and you know, you can, I, know, I can rail about it on a podcast if I want, but if we're gonna go out and make policy, um, we can't just tell homeowners they're bad people and they, you know, shouldn't want security and shouldn't be afraid of the unknown. We have to actively make the case that a more inclusive city can be built that does preserve your security, 
your low traffic street, um, you know, your children's ability to safely walk to school. Like those are those are legitimate real concerns in a culture that has only become more and more concerned with safety and loss aversion, uh, even within our own lifetimes. Got it. Yeah, I mean, sort of pressing you a bit more on on the policy front. Uh, you know, moving forward a hundred years here from uh, the nineteen twenties now to the twenty uh, twenties. You know, there's been a lot of uh, you know rumblings with the you know Yimby movement, the Yes in My Backyard movement, um, you know, being diametrically opposed to the NIMBY movement, the Not in My Backyard uh, uh, individuals you know, who are in favor of uh, you know uh, land use restrictions and keeping things the way they are, or tightening land use restrictions even further. I'm curious, like, what what is your assessment of the I, I don't want to use the word YIMBY necessarily because I, I think there's a lot of things that can get packed into that, like whether you're in favor of you know public uh, development um, versus um, you know just allowing people to build. I think these two things are a bit different, and sometimes I think they can get very much lumped together in this um, YIMBY uh, movement. But I'm curious, like when we think about like the Minneapolis. Um, uh, 2040 change, uh, which uh, now is allowing um, uh, single-family homes um, to, to be built, is, is sort of laxed, um, or sorry, has, has eliminated some single-family um, zoning and is allowing uh, more multifamily housing to be built. I know there's been some discussion recently about how maybe uh, the the progress uh, on, on that has been a bit underwhelming, or since. January, I think it first came in, uh, the policy change first came in in January of 2020, or over two and a half years later, and there's only been so many uh, single family permits that I think have been issued since. So there's been, you know, some little developments, but some people argue there's been a lot more multifamily development in response. Um, obviously, we've got all these pandemic population shift dynamics going on too, which complicates things. And then on the other side of the country, we have California too, which um, I think um, uh, earlier this year, you know, adopted this um, uh, duplex um, sort of law allowing duplexes to be built. And I know just a, a few days ago, I, I think made uh, uh, the California state legislature, I think, just passed a bunch of laws uh, more broadly, uh, allowing uh, for more um, for more building, more uh, and, and uh, more supply. I'm curious, like, what's your assessment right now um, in terms of how much progress has been made in terms of um, reducing the burden of land use regulation on um, the growth of the housing stock? A great question. So uh, just to back up a little for some of your listeners who, who might not be super informed with the YIMBY movement. So I think actually if you have time, there's a 2014 blog post by Kim Mai Cutler called Burrowing, How Burrowing Owls, Owls Lead to Vomiting Anarchists. And I think of this as really the ur text of the YIMBY movement. There's always been people who advocated for affordable housing. There's always been a handful of um, libertarian law professors saying that zoning is, is an illegal takings and we shouldn't have it. But there was never anything like a political movement um, of kind of non-interest group politics that said, it's too hard to build housing. We need to change that. And thanks to people like Kim Mai and a few others, that kind of, it, it just congealed in San Francisco. Things just got to this point where with, you know, very small catalyst, 
people said, oh man, that is the biggest thing in my life right now. And the fact that I'm uh, overburdened by rent despite splitting a house with six other strangers, like that's not actually a natural state of affairs. I have a good middle-class job. This is something dysfunctional. And now somebody's telling me that there are some straightforward policy levers to change it. So I think it's a really interesting movement to look back on now. Um, there was some, there was some uh, interesting cr criticism. Um, I'm blanking on his name, but a, a, one, one you know, right of center columnist was saying, hey, the Indy movement's been underwhelming. Um, they haven't accomplished much. And people piled on him on Twitter, and it's, it's easy to show lots of evidence. Like, so you mentioned Minneapolis is upzoning. California has passed dozens and dozens of laws um, chipping away at this edifice of NIMBYism. Lots of other states have done things. Massachusetts passed a transit-oriented development bill. North Carolina and Utah have banned minimum home sizes. So you, um, you, can't, you can't say a home has to be um, a McMansion to be built in your town. Um, Texas and Arkansas have uh, banned, and, and Utah have banned aesthetic requirements on homes from, from governments. The HOA can do it, but not the government. So there's lots of bills that are being passed that, that are really trying to address this. And, and I think the Yimby political movement has, has flexed political muscle and shown that even with uh, very small organizations and not a lot of infrastructure, they have the energy and the kind of the moral high ground of this particular moment to get things done. The best defense of this kind of like, oh, EMBism is underwhelming view is that, you know, it, it so far has been too little to avoid massive rent increases during the pandemic, right? So um, you and I are meeting right now in a, in a shared office space by a, owned by a fantastic company called Industrious, who's uh, got a nice, nice spread out there that we can enjoy after the podcast. And places like this got hammered during the pandemic, right? People wanted more residential space which wasn't like, I, I didn't predict this, nobody predicted it, we all thought there was gonna be a big recession in 2020. And instead housing prices went up because people, just like we needed more toilet paper at home, um, the toilet paper crisis was because usually we do half our business at the office. And we have a lot of other home needs, we need space to sit down, set up our desk, have our recording equipment. And all of a sudden people who were roommates didn't wanna be roommates anymore. People who were in a one bedroom said, we really need a two bedroom. And all of that kind of like everyone shifting and flexing their shoulders at the same time has really, really stressed the residential market, which also had some supply disruptions that, that interrupted um, construction, obviously. But so maybe that's the case against kind of Yimby effectiveness is like, yeah, that's great. You guys are passing laws, but it was too little too late. Maybe, maybe it came too late to really help ahead of the pandemic, or you can't build houses fast enough to respond to something as fast moving as a pandemic. So. I, 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 that's that's my kind of two-handed take. I call myself a Yimby. I'm unapologetically a member of the Yimby movement. I think we're doing great things, uh, but I do think we need to be realistic about what we can accomplish through changing zoning laws. Interesting. I, I, I do wonder, you know, when you think about the history of like housing prices, you know, uh, I think of you know the Case-Shiller price index. There's that famous paper by um, you know, Case and Schiller. Uh, that extended their time series back to, I think it was 1870. Um, and they brought it all the way to, um, and you can extend it since they wrote the paper to current day. And it's interesting because it's basically looking at 150 years of uh, home prices in, in the US. And real, if you look at the chart, real home price growth from like 1870 to 
1970 or so was essentially flat. And, and then you look at the period after that, it's just uh, you know, rising enormously. Um, so it, it seems like there's something that's very different that's going on since that period of time. I, I know there were, even though a lot of the zoning and, and use zoning started in, in the 1920s, a lot of uh, the things like minimum lot sizes, growth restrictions really, I think, came in in the 70s. That's my sort of understanding of it. I guess when we talk about housing, I'm curious, like, you know, sometimes, um, you know, there's um, obviously it, it's certainly a big political issue. And I, I think the Yimby movement has been successful in communicating that this is, you know, that supply is an urgent um, factor. Um, in, 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 and that's the factor that needs to be addressed. But I'm curious about some of these other factors that kind of come up. And I, I, I personally, I, I think that, you know, these are uh, not the right solutions. Um, but I think they get a lot of political headwinds and a lot of attention. And I think it's important to talk about these things. So, you know, one uh, thing, for example, is um, the whole topic of institutional investor uh, single family rentals. This is a very, very significant trend um, that's been going on over really since the financial crisis, where institutional investors, whether it's um, invitation homes and their financial sponsor, Blackstone, uh, or, uh, uh, for example, Pretty and Partners, which was started by Don Mullen, who actually uh, was working at Goldman Sachs at the same time I was. Uh, we briefly overlapped. He was the head of the mortgage training division. He had left in 2011, right after the financial crisis, and he just decided to start a private equity company that was going to go up across the nation and buy homes uh, that had seen their prices totally battered in the Sun Belt, whether it's, you know, Las Vegas, um, you know, parts of Florida, Arizona. Um, and my understanding is that a lot of these institutional investors are really buying in those areas, have been buying in those areas pretty significantly and are still doing so. Um, but at the time, they were so battered that sort of um, their, I guess, user cost implied a price, you know, fair valuation was so out of whack with the market price that they felt that it was... Um, essentially an, an arbitrage opportunity in, in some right. sense. But I'm curious, like now, you know, 10 years later, I think a lot of those, you know, quote, arbitrages have gone away, if you uh, if you will. Um, it's not like a, a perfect arbitrage, but um, those mispricings have sort of disappeared a bit. But at the same time, uh, the single family rental institutional investor share seems to be continuing to rise. Uh, I think there's some data from uh, the National Association of Realtors that I think now over 10% of all the new purchases are being made by institutional investors. All the new uh, single-family purchases are being made by institutional investors. Do you think that um, you know that this may indicate that there's some issues of concentration? Um, that yeah, you know, this is kind of quote you know, rent extraction. I know that like a lot. Of, we don't have exactly great data on this, but you know certainly uh, in you know, the House Financial Services Committee uh, on the Democratic side of things, this is a huge topic for them. Um, what say you um, to those who fear that institutional investor, um, single-family uh, rentals are driving up home prices to, or, or rents to some degree? Great question. So the, the first thing I do is kind of like check if they're, they're a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. So a, a lot of times anti-investor sentiment is just a, a politically correct mask on anti-renter sentiment, right? The, the investors only work because there are people who want to rent homes. And... Not many single-family houses 
are rented by their occupants. It's, it's maybe 20%. So the market is still overwhelmingly uh, single family owned. And if you look at a lot of the, you know, the, um, the numbers of like, you know, how many homes in one area a particular company has, it sounds like a big number when you're comparing it to the one house that a single family homeowner owns, but it's actually not a big number of units compared to a typical apartment complex. So if you say, oh, huh, this company owns one apartment complex's worth of homes in the Atlanta area, well, that suddenly doesn't sound like systemically important um, data. So I guess my, my assessment, the data, like you said, is really poor. Uh, my assessment of, of institutional investors has been they are a really, really tiny share of the market, but they're growing fast. So they bear watching that, you know, I, I think treating them as if they're moving major things in the national market right now, I think is incorrect. Treating them as an, you know, an area worth focusing on and keeping an eye on because if they keep growing you know, several percent a year for several more years, then they, they will become a significant player. So I, I think it's interesting. The, to the extent there's an arbitrage opportunity, it's that, right, so people need shelter, right? That's a basic human need. Getting a mortgage is one way to do it. Renting is another. And a, a lot of times you have, you have somebody looking at a home and they can afford the monthly payments of either rent or a mortgage, which are often quite similar. But they don't have the down payment or the credit to get the mortgage. And so that's a case where we, we sort of feel a little uncomfortable. And, and my colleague, Kevin Erdman, I think he'd go a lot further than me and say, you know, we, we overreacted to the 2008 financial crisis because we significantly increased the barriers to getting a mortgage. So even when mortgage rates were very accommodating, they were accommodating to people like me who could make a down payment and had good credit. They weren't accommodating to people who had iffy credit and uh, little or no down payment. Um, so, you know, so where does that leave us is, you know, with a kind of a class of people who, if maybe if we were a little more generous, a lot of them would get mortgages, but then their credit's not that great, so a good number of them would default. So if we really want to stop people from defaulting, which is another thing that I know the House Democrats uh, really care about, right? Then we not, need to not give these people mortgages because the reason that they can't get mortgages is, you know, they've got a history of losing jobs or not being able to repay. And um, if there's big costs to defaulting, then you don't want to kind of guide people into, here's a great way to own a home, but oh, actually it's not sustainable for you. I don't know how to split the baby on that. Um, it's a, you know, so I think that's the tough question is, are we making it too hard to get a mortgage? One thing that, I, that I'm actually curious about is since the Fed raised rates so much this summer, and we know rent continues to be up quite a bit, home prices haven't moved that much this year. And what that would tell me as an investor, if I, if I was a cash investor, I'd say, wow, now the people who are mortgage dependent are facing higher costs, so their bids are gonna be lower, but my renters are still paying just as much as they were before or even more. And so if I can buy these homes with cash, now that's a good deal uh, in a way that it wasn't say a year ago. So I, we might get an increase back up to 2019 rates of um, investor or investor purchasing, which were, were down early in the pandemic and, and unclear at the beginning of this year. Got it. Um, so moving on from institutional investor, um, single family rentals, like I'm curious, like what do you think about like some other just like policies in general? We talked about monetary policy. I, I think in general, I think 
monetary policy maybe gets blamed a, a little bit too much uh, for um, swings in, in or increases in housing prices, which have been you know, largely a, a secular phenomenon rather than a cyclical one. Of course, you know, that being said, I think you know, raising rates uh, will, will likely you know, prompt some sort of a cooling in housing markets. You're already starting yeah. to see it with mortgage rates uh, rising, you know, anticipating you know, more uh, or continued elevated inflation and you know, rising rates. Uh, I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on sort of various other policies. You know, we think about things like rent control. I think Orlando is starting uh, rent control. At one point, you know, I, I thought it was sort of a consensus, at least in the economic, academic community, that, you know, rent control, you know, reduced, uh, you know, supply and, and uh, or reduced the rental supply or, or, or um, uh, essentially would, you know, subsidize incumbents, but keep um, uh, things just more expensive for everybody else. And, and I, I thought that was kind of because kind of the cosm, uh, common wisdom, but there's other things like the low-income housing tax credit that's sort of affordable housing sector. And you also have things like um, housing vouchers and so forth. These things have been around for quite a while. Do you think that some of these things contribute to, these are you know, national policies with the exception of rent control. I mean, low-income housing tax credits, um, you know, housing, voucher, housing voucher section eight, you know, these things have been um, national housing policies for decades. Do you think that those have contributed at all to the affordability problems that you know we see today? I don't. I wouldn't put much of a finger on sort of the low-income housing supports. It's certainly there. LIHTC's the, the big problems with LIHTC are, are it's administratively cumbersome, and you end up spending a lot of money just in, in kind of putting together your, your financial stack to finance a LIHTC project. But I would say basically those those products are, are usually in our, their own submarket and they're not really competing with the the main production builders. So you know if you think about for a low income person, what are their housing options? It might be a newly built LIHTC building, but it's more likely uh, a seventy year old um, triplex or something like that. And old housing stock doesn't respond very much. It responds a little bit, but doesn't respond very much to competition. So you're, you're not going to see too much of an effect there, is my guess. Rent control, on the other hand, is, is just extremely destructive. And I think what's especially disturbing about this round of rent control, we saw it in St. Paul, you mentioned Orlando, a bunch of California cities uh, are doing it, is that they're kind of going back a generation, right? Usually we sort of update policies and say, okay, well, we tried this 40 years ago, didn't quite work, but that's because we hadn't thought about this complication. Now we'll fix it and it'll be better. And sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. But in this case, they're actually discarding the lessons that were learned in the 50s and 60s and going back to pre-stagflation policies that when stagflation and high inflation hit were massively destructive, where there weren't you know, um, updates to inflation, vacancy decontrol, exemptions for newly built buildings. If you don't exempt newly built buildings, nobody is gonna build a building, right? Buildings when they're built are very hard to fill, right? So you might actually have significantly low, lower than market rents the first year your building is open. Well, if you've got rent control, you can never raise those. So you're never even reaching the market rent that you, you would normally be having, or, or maybe you'll, you'll say, okay, well, there's rent control, so I'll start with this very high rent and just fill the building slowly and suffer that way. But in either case, it's taking a big bite out of your bottom line. 
So I, you know, I think St. Paul is, is uh, very foolish for the, the policy that they pursued and, and a lot of others. Uh, and I think it's unfortunate part of the politics of the Yimby movement is that in blue states, they see the people who are, who are kind of, you know, the leading activists, they see their political threats coming from the left. They're worried that affordable housing advocates are going to say, ah, oh, you're not really pro-housing, you're pro-developer. And so they kind of get Finlandized into supporting or at least being silent on rent control, even though I think most of them know that it's incredibly destructive and will lead to worse problems down the road. Um, it does it does cause affordability, right? So you'll, if you have rent control over time, renters will pay much less, but usually the quality is declining as well. So it's not clear that their real rent is actually uh, declining as much as you know the unit quality is falling apart. They're in a location that they wouldn't be in otherwise. And so like, yeah, it works out, but it's not, it's not actually that great of a gift to renters. Well, it's um, it's fascinating. Um, just all these topics, I feel like housing is so so timely, uh, given just the astronomically uh, high rates of housing growth that we've seen, um, even uh, you know net of inflation, um, you know, which is elevated now as well. Um, really fascinating topics, and and certainly a lot of um, key policy discussions. Well. Uh, thank you so much, Salim, for joining us. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. Uh, this has been another episode of Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Thanks so much for joining us.